Last week I said that over the lifetime of Joshua, the uh, Israelites had broken the back of the Canaanites as they went in for the first all-around attack uh, of, of the land of Canaan. They had taken the land to some degree, but now they had, to, they had to continue to fight and they had to settle down and actually possess the land. And that's what Judges is all supposed to be about at, at any rate. They have more fighting to do, but now they've got to claim the land and actually live there. So it's about possessing the land of Canaan. And we talked about that last week as we introduced the book. And that's going to take some doing. It's not going to come quickly or easily at all. In the first 20 verses of chapter 1 of Judges, the tribe of Judah will be in a great measure victorious, but not completely. Why will they achieve victory? Is it because they're such great warriors and they know how to fight better than the other guys do? Is that why? Well, Joshua was a great warrior, and the generation under him learned how to fight. They learned the art of war, you could say. And they did a great job. And that was true, but, it, but this war is under the direction of the Lord. It's a different kind of war. It's not just any war. It's under the direction of God. So how will Judah achieve victory? It will be because the Lord grants the victory and no other way. That's why they're going to get the victory. Remember, in verse 1, they inquired of the Lord as to who should go first in claiming their inheritance. And so they have to be commended for their, the fact that they inquired of God, that they sought his guidance. You know, and we said this last week a little bit, we make great mistakes when we don't seek the Lord's guidance. We don't seek his guidance, we make great mistakes in our lives. We've got to be careful about that. Don't ever think you can figure your life out on your own with only your own wisdom as a recourse. That doesn't work. That will be the height of folly if you try to figure out everything on your own without the guidance of God. Always seek his direction first. First of all, we submit our will to his, and then we proceed accordingly. And that's what Israel did here. You notice in verse 1, the sons of Israel, they're united at this time. And they go to together, all together to the Lord to, see his, to seek his leadership. And so they start off right. They start off on the right track without the leadership of Joshua. Joshua has died. He's gone off the scene, the great man of God that he was. They have no real leader mentioned at this point. But they start off in the right way by seeking the Lord's leadership and his guidance. And in verse 2 it says, the Lord says, Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Already we see the land as a gift from God. He's given it to them. Judah only needs to go in and claim the gift. That's what they have to do. We also spoke last week in verse 3 of the alliance between Simeon and Judah. It talks about that there. The inheritance of Simeon fell within the inheritance of Judah, it says in Joshua. Fell within their, in their land, according to Joshua 19. So verses 1 to 3 are introductory material to the book. Our focus tonight will be on verses 4 to 26, Lord willing. And we will notice that the Lord grants victory. The Lord grants victory in verses 4 to 26. First of all, he grants victory for Judah. That's found in verses 4 to 20. He grants victory for Judah. And the first stop along the way is a place called Bezek. Let's read verses 4 to 7. By the way, uh, Brian, can you put the map up there real quick? The area we're going to cover tonight basically is in the southern part of Israel. And we're going to be around Jerusalem, going south to Hebron, Horma, and then eventually they'll go to the uh, Mediterranean Sea, Ashkelon, Gaza, and these areas. And we'll end, up in, uh, we'll end up in Ephraim in a place called Bethel, which is right about there. So it'll be in the southern por portion of Israel tonight. I just had the map up there so we could get a handle on it. There's a lot of geography in chapter 1. 
just so you have a general idea where we're at. Verses 4 to 7, let's read it. It says, Judah went up as they were instructed by God, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they defeated 10,000 men at Bezek. They found Adoni Bezek in Bezek. Where else would you find Adoni Bezek except in Bezek? <laughs> and they fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adoni Bezek fled, and they pursued him and, cut, and caught him, and what they do? They cut off his, th- his thumbs and his big toes. Adoni Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to gather up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. So they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. It talks about the Canaanites in verse 4. The Canaanites, as I said last week, probably describe the people of Canaan as a whole. They're divided up into many tribes. But that word is kind of the catch-all term to describe all of them. The Perizzites, in verse 4 also, just a small part of the land of Canaan, and very little is known about them. However, we do know this, they are the enemy. And Judah, and and, and again, we see why Judah is victorious in verse 4. It says, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. He said he would do that, and and he keeps his promise just as he always does. Even for us, he keeps his promises, keeps the promises of his word always. So you need to know at the outset that the reason they're victorious is because the Lord is behind the victory. That's why they achieve victory. As a result of all this, it says they defeat, or really the word is smite or kill, they kill 10,000 men at Bezek. Now, the location of Bezek is not known, but it's not very far from Jerusalem, as I pointed out on the map that was there a minute ago. <laughs> but the next, and also the context tells us that the next stop is in Jerusalem. So probably near Jerusalem somewhere. In verse 5, they discover the whereabouts of the leader. His name is Adoni Bezek. Now, Adoni means Lord. He is the Lord of Bezek, or he is the, something like the mayor of the city, or the ruler of the city, or maybe even the king. He's the guy in charge, in other words. And they fight against him. But he escapes, as kings and rulers always have an escape route they have planned out in advance. He escapes, and they pursue him, and they capture him. And what do they do when they capture him? They cut off his, big th- his thumbs, rather, and his big toes. Now, that seems especially cruel, doesn't it? Man, they go after this guy, and right away they're, they're cutting off limbs from his body. And why would they do that? Well, for one thing, this action would humiliate rulers like that. and would incapacitate them. That, that man would no longer to, to be able to be lead an army. He couldn't lead an army after that. He's done for. So that would do that. And it's not an unusual occurrence in the ancient world. Those people were cruel beyond measure oftentimes. But there's another reason why this happened. And here we have the personal testimony of Adoni Bezek. You never thought you'd hear about him or read about his testimony, right? It's in verse 7. Why do they have this harsh, harsh treatment administered on him? Look at his own words in verse 7. He says, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to gather up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. I think that Judah knew or found out somewhere along the line that this guy had, had gone on military campaigns, had captured 70 kings, so quite the military guy, and had, and, and, and had literally cut their thumbs and big toes off to incapacitate them and to humil- humiliate them. He had done this. You see, Adoni Bezek was a cruel, heartless ruler. 
He was cruel, he was heartless, and he humiliated other rulers. In fact, he treated them like dogs. It's, he, you can see from the text here that they were under his table when somebody would just throw them food like you would to a dog and they try to grab up whatever they could to eat. Just total humiliation of the kings or the, uh, yeah, the kings here. And so that's how he treated people. You, normally you treat royalty even when, uh, when you capture them, or often you do. You let them sit at your table or, or have some place where they can have some decent, uh, sometimes it can be very decent for them, but depending on the ruler. But this guy wasn't like that at all. Very cruel, humiliating him. You know what I thought of when I, when I read this? I thought of Lazarus in Luke 16, Mike. I thought of Lazarus who was, under, who was you know, hoping that he could catch crumbs that fell off the rich man's table and eat them. Same type thing. As I read this, I thought to myself, I, you know, I never cease to be amazed at the cruelty of one human being to another in this world. As you read through history, and even now you see it, I'm, I'm always amazed at this. It's kind of like the king or the ruler of North Korea <clears throat> who eats high on the hog, while his people starve to death. It's kind of, like, kind of like this guy, Adoni Bezek. And it shows us something of the depravity of man, doesn't it? Man is totally depraved. We talk about the total depravity of man, and not, it's not always running to its extent uh, to the full course in everybody's life, but man is totally depraved. But nevertheless, I commend this king, this ruler, this mayor for admitting to it. He says that God is paying me back for what he did. In other words... What he sowed, he also reaped, didn't he? He did this to other guys. He got it done back to him. And I think God used Judah to, to bring this upon him, to bring this judgment upon him. Now, the word God here, when he says God repaid me, it can be the God of the Bible or it can be a false God, depending on the context. Understand this guy was a pagan Canaanite, and he didn't know the true God at all. So he says God has repaid me. Now, I don't know who he's talking about there, but regardless of who it is, the Lord will not let a person get away with his sin forever. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. Everyone's going to get justice from God. There was a, a colorful preacher at the beginning of the, 19th, the 20th century, rather, by the name of Billy Sunday. And he was very entertaining guy. He used to play baseball, became a preacher, and he'd uh, evangelist. He'd come up on the stage, and he'd run into the pulpit and slide, kind of get people's attention, because he used to be a baseball player. But he had a famous sermon he preached called God's Detective, based on Numbers 32. And God's Detective is this verse, be sure your sin will find you out. And he, he'd preach that, because it's true, that sin eventually, as we get into it, will find us out. It'll make, it'll make us known. It'll expose us for who we are. And ultimately, all of us are under the judgment of God, and we'll bear his wrath unless we turn to the one who was judged for our sins, and that's Christ. If we turn to him, then we'll be safe in the arms of God. And then you'll notice at the end of verse 7, they bring him to Jerusalem, and he dies there. Maybe he bled to death from his wounds. Maybe he got an infection and died. It doesn't tell us, but he died there. And the Lord, so the Lord, first of all, gives victory to Judah at a place called Bezek. And then they, they get victory from God at Jerusalem. Look at, look at verse 8. <clears throat> then the sons of Israel, or sons of Judah, rather, fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. There's very little said here, but you'll notice that they set the city on fire. Now, that may sound just as cruel as what Adoni Bezek did to the 70 kings. But, in fact, it was a total act of obedience to the Lord on their part. God had told them, and we, saw, we talked about this last week, so if you didn't come last week, 
you may not fully understand this, but he had told them to totally destroy every Canaanite in the land. For example, Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 and 17, it says, Only in the cities of these people that the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. <clears throat> you shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. They were to utterly devote to destruction, and that's the, that's the phrase you want to use. They were to utterly devote to destruction every Canaanite that lived. That's what God said very plainly. Why? Because the Canaanites were extremely wicked in their sight, in God's sight. We saw this last week. We read that in the scripture. Their evil practices were an abomination in his sight. Things like offering their children to, in a fire to the false god Molech and many other things they did. And God said, I'm tired of it. And one of the things that's going to happen in this campaign to take over Canaan is you're going to judge the enemy, the Canaanites. It's not the first time a Canaanite city was burnt with fire. In Judges 6, Israel burnt Jericho with fire. In Judges 8, they burnt Ai with fire. In Judges 11, they burned a city called Hazor with fire. They did what God commanded them to do. I'm going to say more about Jerusalem when we get to verse 21 in regards to Judah. Verse 9 is a survey of the upcoming battles they were going to fight. Look at verse 9. Afterward, the sons of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country and in the Negev and in the lowland. This is a transitional verse here, verse 9. It kind of outlines the regions where Judah is going to be fighting in their upcoming battles. They're going to be fighting in the hill country. They're going to be fighting in the Negev, the desert area in the south. They're going to fight in the lowland. And then the breakdown is this, verses 10 to 15, and we'll go through this, describe the fighting in the hill country. Verses 16 and 70 talk, 17 talk about the fighting in the Negev, and verse 18 talks about the fighting in the lowland. It kind of breaks down like that. Well, you ask yourself this question, is all this geography really necessary? You've got to have a map, a cartographer, who's a, and his assistant cartographer in the back behind the uh, <laughs> desk over there. And you have to talk about all these places like Jerusalem and and Ashkelon and, and all this, Hazor. We really need all this geography. I don't even like, people say, I don't even like geography. Now, I know I like geography. I know Mike Liptak likes geography here. I think Ryan likes geography too. But uh, most people don't like it. But here's the, here's the thing. The Bible is based on a historical background, and it's based on a geographical background. And you can't ignore that. It's, it's very important. The Bible did not take place in a vacuum somewhere. It took place in, in the real world, in, in real land, in real time. It took place, for the most part, in Israel. <clears throat> Ryan and I had a teacher by the name of Dr. Warner who was, we like a lot. He was an archaeologist at that time in Israel for about 25 years and, and taught here. He'd go on every summer and do a dig in Israel. Cool guy. He wore jeans and not like all the other teachers there, <laughs> ties and coats. He wore jeans and had longer hair and he... Uh, rode a motorcycle in and had boots on. <laughs> and so we called him Indiana Jones. But Dr. Warner said, why all the geography in the Bible? And he had a great answer for that. He said, because God was there. God worked in that land of Israel. Jesus walked in the land of Israel. And so when you read all those places, don't say, oh, no, I've got to read through my Bible and I've got to go through all these geographical names and sites and cities and mountains and hills and valleys and rivers. How am I ever going to get through this? That's very important. All that stuff is there for a reason. It shows that God was there in real world, in real time, 
doing a real work. So it's very important. The Bible has a background of geography and history. We talked about, it says, it talks about the hill country in verses 10 to 15. This is an area just south of Jerusalem. By the way, verses 10 to 15 are a flashback to Joshua chapter 15. It already took place. The reason it's here is because it's listed here to, to, show the, to show the victories of Judah together. So it incorporates what's already been done. And by the way, this is not the only flashback we have in Judges. You'll see others to Joshua as well. So they enter the hill country and they fight in verse 10. The first victory they have there is at a place called Hebron. It says in verse 10, So Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba, more geographical terms. And they struck Sheshai and Ahimon and Talmai there. Now, it's interesting because this verse says that Judah won a victory at Hebron, at Hebron, whereas Joshua 15 says about the same story that Caleb won the victory there. So which is it, Caleb or Judah? Well, both statements are true. According to Numbers 13.6, Caleb was the head of the tribe of Judah. So there's no conflict there at all. People like to say, oh, the Bible's contradicting itself. Most of these people that say that have never even looked at the Bible, first of all. Have no idea what it says. Couldn't tell you what the next verse is about at all, but they like to point these things out. So there's no conflict here. But what stands out about this victory is the three guys at the end of the verse. According to Numbers 13, these three guys were descendants of Anak, and they were very tall and very intimidating. That's why when the 12 spies went out to spy out the land in advance in Numbers 13, the 10 of the spies said, we're not able to go up against these people because they're stronger than we are. Deuteronomy 9.2 says that they had a, quite the reputation, these guys, these sons of Anak. It says that they are a people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, whom you know, you, you know these guys, they've got a reputation, and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Nobody can fight these guys. They're too strong, they're too tall, they're too big, they're too mean. We can't do it. Were they really as fearsome and scary and intimidating as they thought they were? The Bible says they were. They were, were indeed that way. They were a formidable foe, not some pushover. They were tough guys. But Caleb and Joshua, the two spies that went out uh, among the twelve, had a different opinion of this in number 13. They had a different opinion about these guys. The ten spies were disheartening the people. But what did Caleb say about the three sons of, of Anak? He said this, he said in Numbers 13, let us go up at once and occupy the land for we are well able to overcome it. We can do this because we trust in God. We trust in God. And in Joshua 15 it says that Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak, Sheshai, Ahimon, and Talmai. Well, what's the difference between Joshua and Caleb's attitude and the ten spies? Well, turn to Joshua chapter 14. Joshua 14. Let's read Caleb's own testimony in Joshua 14, verses 6 to 14. Joshua 14, verse 6. It says, Then the sons of Judah <coughs> drew near to Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. 
Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord my God fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. Now behold, the Lord has let me live, just as he spoke, these 45 years from the time the Lord spoke this word to Moses, when Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am 85 years old today. First of all, he mentions being 40 years old. Now he says, it's 45 years later, I'm 85. Look at the next statement. No excuses from any senior citizens here, all right? <laughs> I am still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now for war, <laughs> and for going out and for coming in. I'm ready to do battle, military battle. I'm 85 years old. Let's go out and fight these guys. We can do it. Now then, give me this hill country. I'm going to get it. I'm going to take it, about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that the, the Anakim were there. There's those, the sons of Anak. With great fortified cities, perhaps the Lord will be with me, and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. So Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, until this day, because he followed the Lord of God of Israel fully. See that phrase over and over again? He followed the Lord God fully. What's the difference between Caleb, Joshua, versus the ten spies? Caleb and Joshua fully followed the Lord. And the other guys were just, they weren't trusting in God at all. You know, I think it was William Carey, the missionary to India, that said, attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. And that's exactly what Caleb did. He had the attitude, I can do anything for God. Why? Because God can do it. That's why. God can take care of it. No matter how difficult the job is, God can do it. And so with God, we know that in the scriptures it teaches that with God all things are possible. So Caleb had this attitude of faith. So in the hill country, Hebron is taken by Caleb. At this point, Judah is on the march, aren't they? They're doing, doing very well. But also in the hill country, they have a victory at a place called Debir. Look at verse, verses 11 to 15. Debir. It says here, Then from there he went against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath-Sefer. And Caleb said, The one who attacks Kiriath-Sefer and captures it, I will even give my daughter Aksaw for a wife. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. So he gave him his daughter, Axel, for a wife. Then it came about, when she came to him, that she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. Then she alighted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have given me the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Again, you see in verse 11, the former name of the city is mentioned as, as it was in verse 10. Now, here's something where Caleb wants a city taken, so he offers his daughter as a reward for the one who captures the city of Debir. Now, I'm sure present-day Americans would find this a horrible scenario. You're offering your daughter to whoever takes his city. And, but that would not be unusual in that time. In fact, it was a good thing because the guy who would stand up and do that was the guy to be reckoned with, and Axel would get a very noble husband out of this whole deal here. I also had the suspicion that Caleb knew who would rise up for the challenge. I think he knew it was going to be Othniel, who was a relative of Caleb, by the way. 
Now, what follows is a very interesting little story about what a really good family looks like in the time of Judges because there weren't a lot of good families around at the time. Um, <clears throat> first of all, you see that Caleb is the godly, you know Caleb is the godly man anyway. He's the father of Axol, and my guess is he had great influence on Axol to follow the Lord fully as he did. Secondly, she gets a noble husband in Othniel, and we're going to see that more in a later chapter, what a good man he was. And then Othniel gets a great father-in-law, in addition to already being related to him. What does he call this guy anyway? Uncle or you know, dad or what? I'm not sure. He's a few relationships to him. And then Othniel gets a wise wife. How do we know that? Because in verse 14, she approaches her husband and says, ask for, you know, I want you to ask for a field in addition to what we've already got. And, uh, and then she decides to do it herself. She asks her father instead. Um, she dismounts from her donkey. By the way, that was a sign of respect back then as, appro- as she approached her father. And Caleb realizes she's seeking his attention, so he says, what do you want? And in verse 15, she says, give me a blessing. Now, she's not asking for a dowry for Othniel, but there was a custom back then that when a, a woman was married, given in marriage, she could ask a blessing from her father. And that's what she's doing here, asking for that blessing. Um, the area that Othniel had inherited was a place called the Negev, which was a desert type of area. And so what, what would they need in that area? They need water, right? So she asked for this very practical request. She asked for water. And so you see her practical wisdom here. But what else would you expect from a daughter of Caleb, right? Living in that household? You would expect someone practical like that. It reminds me of the, the, the woman in Proverbs 31 that God says is the virtuous woman virtuous wife. She's the woman that's very practical in many things that she does and has practical wisdom. And Caleb, being the the good man that he is, he gives her more than she asked for. He gives her upper and lower springs because he shows his love and concern for her by doing this, by going overboard. Just to point out, this picture of this family is in dramatic uh, uh, contrast to what happens later on to families during this time in Judges. So the Lord gives Judah Victory in the hill country. And then they do battle in the, in the Negev. That's the southern part of Judah, which is mainly desert, way down south. In fact, is it written there? Yeah, it is. There it is right there. Down south over here. Desert area. In verse 16, you have this association with a, place, a group called the Kenites. It says there, the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, <clears throat> Went up from the city, went up from the city of, of the Palms, maybe the city of Palms is Jericho, some think it is. Others think it's another city that is uh, it's, uh, not as little known. Anyway, they go up from the city of Palms with the sons of Judah to the wilderness of Judah, which is in the south of Arad, and they went and lived with the people. Now, this is just a little, this story is a little aside. It's got to do with Moses' father-in-law. It takes us back to Numbers chapter 10, where Moses... In Numbers chapter 10, ask his father-in-law to travel with them, to come with Israel and be blessed by God, to, to enjoy the blessings of the land that they never actually received. And, and his father-in-law wisely said, no, I'll find my own land. Maybe he knew something that, that uh, wasn't seen on the surface there. But Moses said this to the, his father-in-law in Numbers 10. He says, come with us and we will do you good. But his father-in-law said, no thanks, I appreciate the offer, but I'm going my own direction. But now, in verse 16 here in Judges 1, they join with them, these descendants of the father-in-law of Moses. So Judges 1.16 becomes the fulfillment of the promise Moses gave to them to do good to his father-in-law and their descendants. 
Well, verse 17, they talk about victory at Zephath and, and the Negev. It says in verse 17, Then Judah went with Simeon, his brother. They struck the Canaanites living in Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. They utterly destroyed the city, which is exactly what God said to do. This doesn't always happen, but they, they did it this time. They named it Hormah. By the way, that word comes from the word which means to utterly devote to destruction, just like God said to do. And they call it that. This word means destruction for all intents and purposes, and that's what they did. So they carried out on this city what God had plainly told them to do. And in verse 18, we've seen victories in the lowland. That's the coastal plain near Mediterranean. By the way, that's over here on the Mediterranean coast. And they are victorious there. It says in verse 18, Judah took Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. Not much comment there at all, is there? A lot of geography, <laughs> more geography. But the fact of the matter is that was three major Philistine cities they took. Of the, of the five, they took three of those cities. It doesn't say they conquered or fought against the other ones. And maybe the other, one, well, other ones were weak at the time. The Philistines were a constant thorn in the side of Israel. And at this time, at least, they're victorious over them. Now, verses 19 and 20 kind of summarize the campaign of Judah. They summarize the part about the hill country, verse 19. It says, now the Lord was with Judah, and they took possession of the hill country. In their military campaigns, they were able to take the possession of the hill country. Why were they able to do this? Verse 19, it says the Lord was with Judah. He's with them. The Lord told them to fight and destroy the Canaanites and devote them to destruction, but the fact of the matter was it's because he was with them. That's why they were able to be, con uh, be, able to be conquerors. So the, the victories that they got, they, they couldn't attribute to their own ability as warriors. Ultimately, the Lord enabled them as they fought, and he granted them the victory. Again, look at the, look at the summary of this in chapter 1, verse 2. In verse 2, it says, The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And so God gives the land to them. In verse 4, the Lord gave the enemy into their hands. In verse 19, the Lord is with Judah. Constantly... We need to constantly be reminded in this book that God is the one. Uh, any good thing that happens is because of God in this book. Don't ever think, again, don't ever think you can succeed in life without the Lord. You can't do it. Don't ever think that your success comes because you're talented, or because you have this particular ability in your life that puts you over the top of others. Don't ever think our church is growing because we have some great plan we've schemed up. We never schemed a plan at all in this church. We never had a plan. We just went day by day. Don't ever think this church is growing because there's such choice service of God here. That's not the issue at all. God can shut down this church just as, as well as he's raised it up. And furthermore, understand that your abilities came from God. All of it. Gifts came from God. Everything we have comes from him. And so we're to use those for his glory alone. And always remember that it's God that gets the credit for all that's done. The Lord is with us. Remember that. The Lord was with them. So they achieved the victories in the hill country. <clears throat> you say, well, that's fine, Mark, but did you read the rest of verse 19? No, I forgot about that in my study. It says in verse 19, Now the Lord was with Judah, <clears throat> and they took possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. They could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. 
You know, atheists and Bible haters like to point to this verse, and they say, God was defeated by the iron chariots. He couldn't get past them. He couldn't, he couldn't handle them. Is it true that the iron chariots are too much for the Lord to handle? Is that true? That's what it says there. He was with them in the first part of verse 19. They were able to conquer the hill country, but, however, when they got to the valley, they couldn't do anything there because the people had iron chariots. And that's all it says. Were the iron chariots too much for God? Well, let's think about that for a minute. First of all, don't minimize the strength of the iron chariots. Don't minimize how strong and how formidable they were. That would be a big mistake. They were a tremendous weapon of warfare at that time. There are some critics who like to say that iron didn't even exist then, by the way, but archaeological finds have proven otherwise that iron did exist then, definitely, even before the Iron Age began. The chariots probably were not totally made of iron, but they were reinforced with plates of iron where the guys needed protection in the chariot. And so this becomes, at this time, a superior technology to other forms of warfare. So you have a force to be reckoned with here. Now, these iron chariots did not work well in the mountains at all. They couldn't, they couldn't do anything in the mountains. That's why they, it was easier to have success in the hill country. But they were great in the flat plains of the valley. Once you got them down there in the flat plains of the valley, man, they could maneuver well. In fact, it was, once they were moving, it was very difficult for foot soldiers to, to withstand them. They were just formidable force, like I said. And Israel didn't have iron chariots to fight back with. They didn't have that. So imagine facing this new weapon on the scene, and you don't know how to handle it. It's a new form of technology. Now, we look back and we, say, we, we think, well, that's a big deal about iron chariots. But to them, it was a big deal. Think, go back in time and try to put yourself in their place. It was a very menacing situation for them at the time. It was so menacing that in, in Joshua 17, Ephraim and Manasseh, the tribes of, of Joseph, come to uh, Joshua and they say to him, we can't take the valley. You want us to, you, want us to, you said, we, they, they complained about not having enough territory. And Joshua said, well, I've given you the hill country, take the valley. And they said, we can't take the valley because there's chariots of iron and the Canaanites have chariots of iron in the valley. We can't withstand them. We can't defeat him, in other words. We can't do it. It's too strong for us. So the chariots of iron were considered the weapon of choice at that time, if you could get them. So we don't want to minimize their strength. A real tough weapon, no doubt. So were the chariots of iron too much of a problem for God? Were they? Verse 19 seems, seems to indicate that. Did the Lord say, I'm going to drive out your enemy from before you, Every enemy you have, no matter what he has, unless they have those dreaded iron chariots. That's too much for me to handle. Did he say that? You know, when Ephraim and Manasseh complained about not fighting, the, being able to take over the, chariot, the, 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 the valley because of the iron chariots, you know what Joshua said to them in Joshua 17, 18? He said, you shall drive out the Canaanites even though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. Joshua didn't think that was an obstacle for the Lord at all. He said, you can take care of it. What's the problem? Trust in God and do it. You know, the God that created the element of iron, yes, I had to look up the fact that iron was an element. The God that created the element of iron can also destroy the element of iron. Turn to Judges chapter 4. Judges 4. We're not going to look into the context here. We'll look at that later on when we get there. Just quickly, though, look at chapter 4, verse 3. The sons of Israel are in a mess again. 
They cried to the Lord, for he had. They cried to the Lord, for he, Jabin, this king, had nine hundred iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for twenty years. How are you going to fight against nine hundred iron chariots? One of them's bad enough. Nine hundred iron chariots? Surely God can't do anything about that, right? But look at verse fifteen in the same chapter. They do battle later on in verse fifteen. We'll we'll develop it later. The Lord routed Caesarea and all his chariots. Those are the 900 iron chariots. He routed the chariots and all the army with the edge of the sword before Barak and Caesarea alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. God, the, the, the iron chariots were no match for God at all when it came down to it. So why could Judah not drive them out? Well, it wasn't because God was incapable. Obviously, God was very capable to do that. I think it's the same reason that Ephraim and Manasseh couldn't drive them out. I don't think they believed God. I don't think they trusted God. In, in their eyes, the chariots were bigger than God. They saw the chariots tougher than God is. God can't handle that. It's too much for him. It's unbelief. They let the obstacle in front of them block their vision of God. What did this chapter said over and over again? The Lord was with them. The Lord gave them the land. The Lord could drive them out. All those kind of things. But they, they couldn't see this with the iron chariots. So Judah was defeated in the valley. Now, ask yourself this question. Are we any different from them when it comes down to it? We have sins in our life that plague us as much as the iron chariots plagued Israel back in that time. Formidable sins. Things in our life, anxieties or sins of all kinds that we, can't, that we face and we, that conquer us constantly. These sins are real, aren't they? Like the iron chariots were. They're formidable, but we've got to keep in mind that Christ has delivered us from these sins. The Holy Spirit indwells us. The Word of God instructs us what to do about it. We have the power of God. We have prayer. And so we don't trust God is the whole problem. We don't put on the armor of God. So we live defeated lives instead of being victorious in Christ. Christ has given us the victory already. Judah could have driven the iron chariots out because God said they could do anything. But they chose not to is the bottom line. There's a side note in verse 20 on Caleb. It says, Then they gave Hebron to Caleb as Moses had promised, and he drove out from there the three sons of Anak. We already know that. Um, Caleb is in tribe of Judah, so he's given this inheritance. So we start out with victory, for the most part, with Judah. Pretty good. Not a bad start for judges. All in all, they were pretty well victorious. However, in verse 21, things begin to change somewhat. <clears throat> They changed drastically for Benjamin in verse 21. We see the failure of Benjamin in verse 21. <clears throat> Saw the victories of Judah earlier. Now we're seeing the, the failure of Benjamin. It says in verse 21, the sons of, But the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. <coughs> the territory assigned to Benjamin was squeezed between the bigger tribes, tribes of Judah and, and Ephraim, see that? Judah's right here, Ephraim, little Benjamin right here, not much land. They're just kind of squeezed together. In the same way, this note concerning Benjamin is placed between the accounts of victories of Judah and the house of Joseph. Ephraim was the son of Joseph in the, in the passage that follows here, starting in verse 22. <clears throat> who were the Jebusites? They were Canaanite people who lived in Jerusalem. They were Canaanites, <clears throat> basically, that God said to wipe out. But Benjamin was unable to drive them out. 
Joshua, by the way, Joshua 15 says the same thing of Judah. Judah was unable to drive out Jebusites as well. They both tried at different times. The reason is because Jerusalem's on the border there, and and both Benjamin and Judah tried to to get in, and neither one of them were successful. Not, Not even until this day, until the day of Joshua was written, until the day Judges was written, they weren't able to do it. Both of them tried at different times. They failed. These are ominous words, and there's ominous words at the end of the verse. Look at, look at the end of verse 21. It says, so the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. They lived side by side with the Canaanites, Benjamin did, the tribe of Israel. That's not what the Lord wanted, was it? It's not what he said. He said, kill them, get rid of them. They're going to influence you to worship false gods, get rid of them. But they didn't do that. We go to verses 22 to 26. We see here the Lord gives, grants victory to Joseph. The Lord grants victory to Joseph. It says in verse 22, and we'll close with these four verses. Likewise, the house of Joseph went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. The house of Joseph spied out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. It's not Luz, it's Luz. (laughs) The spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will treat you kindly. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go free. The man went into the land of the Hittites and built the city and called it Luz, which is its name to this day. The house of Joseph, it talks about in verse 22. That's not a tribe. Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and they're two of the tribes of Israel. So when it says the house of Joseph, it's either referring to Ephraim and Manasseh together in battle or maybe probably just Ephraim because Bethel fell in the inheritance of Ephraim. Probably Ephraim was fighting here. But in notice in verse 22 again, it says the Lord was with them, right? The Lord was with the house of Joseph. They had the same privilege that Judah had of having the Lord with them, in other words. So victory's assured, right? Should be no problem at all. What do they decide to do? Well, they take a military strategy from Joshua's playbook. They decide to send out spies into the city of Bethel. And that same approach is in Joshua used in chapter in Joshua chapter 2 and verse and also Joshua chapter 6. They spin out, send out a team to spy Bethel. Verse 24, they see a man coming out of the city, a citizen of Bethel, and they ask him to reveal where the entrance of the city is. And they said, look, if you, if you do this, we'll return our, your kindness to you. We'll show kindness to you. He complies with them, and they go in and destroy the city. The kindness they showed to the man was letting his family go free. Sounds like a fair trade, right? They, they, you know, they said, show us the entrance to the city. We'll let you go free. And he goes away and builds his own city. They get the victory. There's no harm done, right? Everything seems to be okay with that story. However, upon further examination, there seems to be more to the story than at first we noticed. It's okay that they spy out the city, but verse 24 is a real problem. Verse 24, the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, please show us the entrance to the city, and we will treat you kindly. We're going to treat you kindly. What were they supposed to do with every Canaanite? Treat them kindly? They were to devote them to destruction. Again, another verse. Deuteronomy 7, 2, it's all over the Pentateuch. When the Lord your God delivers the Canaanites before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, and you shall show no favor to them. 
Don't show any favor. Don't be kind to them at all, in fact. And these, in, in this verse, Joseph says, his sons say, we're going to treat you kindly. If you'll, we'll strike a deal with you. You show us what we need, we'll treat you kindly. We'll take care of you. That's, that word kindly there is very interesting. That's the well-known uh, word, Hebrew word, kesed, that you normally see translated uh, loving kindness or mercy. The Lord's loving kindness it talks about often. It's all over the Old Testament. They say, in effect, it's, by the way, this is the loyal love that the Lord showed to his covenant people. They said, if you show us the interest of the city, we'll treat you with kesed. We'll treat you with the loyal love, the covenant love that God shows the nation of Israel. What? Seriously? How backwards could that be? When Rahab the harlot was uh, helping the men in Joshua 2, that was a little different story because when she helped the spies out, she acknowledged the Lord. She acknowledged his power. She said, we know your God is the strongest, and we know he's the Lord God of all. Of all. But this guy, this Canaanite doesn't acknowledge God at all. He doesn't say anything about God at all. He goes and builds a city. That's all it says. They should have never have made the deal with this guy. It was totally against what God wanted. You might think, so what? What's the big deal? It's just one family. They go and build a, 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 you know, a house for their retirement. Seems like the right thing to do. What's the big deal? Well, verse 26 is a big deal. The man went into the land of the Hittites and built a city and named it Luz, which is its name this day. In verse 26, that family goes to another location and builds a city that becomes inhabited with who? Canaanites, the people they were to destroy. The very people God said to destroy. So now we have a new Canaanite city, and apparently the people there live happily ever after. That should have never happened. That was a big mistake. But there's something else in this verse, in this story, that, con that concerns the city of Bethel. Bethel was the place mentioned in Genesis where Jacob, where God had appeared to Jacob, where Jacob had set a pillar up to commemorate that occasion of his appearance from God. It's all found in Genesis 28, by the way, if you want to read it. Guess what the city had been formally originally called, what Bethel had been originally called? It had originally been called Luz. But Jacob named it Bethel, which means what? It means the house of God, right? But now Bethel had become a Canaanite. Over time, Bethel had become a Canaanite city for all intents and purposes. And the house of Joseph rightly, rightfully destroys it in these verses here. <clears throat> However... With the memory of Bethel gone, the house of God, right? This man goes and builds a new site and calls it the same name, Luz, which is the Canaanite name for that city. At one time, God had been worshipped at Bethel, but now the Canaanite guys would be worshipped at Luz, this new city he built. So, you see, the house of Joseph had another plan they thought would work, but it wasn't God's plan, it was an alternative plan. Don't beware creating an alternative plan to the, will, to the will of God that's revealed in the Bible. Don't create the alternative plan because what you think is clever or reasonable or fair in the eyes of men could come, one, come, come back one day to haunt you. All kinds of things, bad things happen when you turn from the plan of God and come up with your own plan that you think is a reasonable one. And that's what happened here. Human reasoning should never interfere with a clear biblical mandate from God. And your idea is not better than God's. It never is and never will be. So the house of Joseph is victorious, yes, but it's a totally unsatisfactory victory, isn't it? Because something bad comes out of it. A new city is started. 
by Canaanites who get to live there for free without any fear of reprisal at all. And so in some ways we could say it was a total defeat. Well, we're starting to see some cracks in the armor, armor, aren't we, of Israel. What started out as following the Lord is now going south a little bit on us. There were initial victories of, with, of Judah, by Judah with the help of God, but now something is starting to go wrong. You know, when you start out good, doesn't mean you're necessarily going to finish strong, does it? How many guys started out good like Solomon in life and ended up kind of bad? Things kind of went south on them. You remember the verse Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians 5-7? He said, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. He says to the Galatians, you were running well. You were doing good. You got a great start, but why, aren't you, what's, why are you not obeying the truth now? That, it wasn't God, he says. This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. God calls you to salvation. It's not God that got you off track. Paul says, and it wasn't God that got Israel off track either, was it? It wasn't God. They were doing well, Israel was, Judah was, but what happened? They have, ultimately, they have no one to blame but themselves. Next week, the Lord willing, we will find out where they went wrong as we continue in Judges chapter 1. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word tonight. I pray that it'll instruct us. We pray that we will, as Caleb by your power, by your grace, by your might, follow the Lord fully, not relying on our own resources, not coming up with our own plans, not reasoning out everything in our own mind, thinking that we have the answer to everything. But Lord, we pray we'll look to you for guidance, for leadership, for wisdom, for strength, for grace to be victorious uh, in, the, in, the, in the kingdom of your Son. We just praise in Christ's name. Amen.